Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. In my life, there have been several situations where I thought, oh, shit, this is the end of the world. This is really bad. You know, things have happened. I can think of several, you know, where I found out that both of our children had autism. You know, I lost the job at CBS, various medical challenges, other things, problems in relationships. I thought, this is horrible. I'm never going to get over this. I'm never, this is going to be it for me. And in fact, some of those situations wound up being the springboards to which the greatest joys of my life evolved. That was Fred Melamed. I'm San Fragoso. This is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Fred Melamed has been a true character actor, performer from Yale's drama school that has appeared briefly in pretty much everything. Seven Woody Allen movies, from Hannah and her sisters to Another Woman. He was also in Suspect, The Good Mother, and, well, Ishtar. Even if you do not know Melamed by name, you know his voice. His deep boom is commanding, powerful yet soothing. When the acting wasn't paying the bills, Fred would use this natural gift of his. From the killing fields of Cambodia to the fields of fire in Kuwait, from the devastation of Oklahoma City to a rebirth of hope in the Middle East, experience CBS News. The power and might of Tony Balthazar. 
the fighting machine of Sammy Fuentes. When the smoke clears, In more recent years, Fred has seen a resurgence. His role as Cy Abelman in the Coen Brothers' A Serious Man catapulted him back onto the map. From there, it seemed people took notice. He landed bit parts in TV shows like Curb Your Enthusiasm, Dirty Rock, The Good Wife, House of Lies. Fred's on-screen success is not just about his voice. He has an ability to play varying kinds of people. The composed, sage adult, the disturbed, unhinged man-child. He has range, a true actor's actor. His most recent work is in the wonderful new film by writer-director Janixa Bravo. It's called Lemon. The part is a small role that Fred nonetheless shines in. After all, he has a tendency to do that. I'll admit this conversation has a tendency to drift from place to place within Fred's life and career. We're both a bit interested in psychoanalyzing. All the same, I hope you enjoy where this talk goes with Fred. I know I did. Now, finally, here is Fred Malamed. Let's start with 1956. Sure. I don't mean to jump into this so quickly, considering we've only known each other for a little bit. But I don't know how we start with your story if we don't begin with the fact that you're born in New York with, with adopted parents. Yes. I was born in New York in May of 1956 in Queens in a little hospital that doesn't exist anymore called Doctor's Hospital which now, if you visit it, is an almost entirely Korean neighborhood in Queens, mm. Jackson Heights, Queens. But at the time, was a largely Jewish, largely Catholic section of Queens in those days. And my biological mother was a woman called Nancy Zala, who I'm friends with, I still know, she lives out here in California, and my biological father, was a man called Stan Silverstone, who was a psychiatrist, a, a, a psychoanalyst. A British psychoanalyst. British, but raised, he only lived briefly in England. He, was, he left England because of the Blitz and the war, and he was sent to live with his, his grandmother in South Africa. Once he got to be about, I think, a teenager, his family moved to New York. So he was English, raised part of the time in South Africa to avoid the dangers of the war, and then came to New York, where his family owned an art store in the city. So the two of them were my biological parents. I didn't know any of this until I was much, much older. Mm -hmm. So I was adopted in 1956 by Seema and Lou Melamed. And my father, Lou, had been in radio and became a television producer, an early television producer. Produced shows all in New York, of course, early comedy shows. He worked with a guy called Nat Hyken, who was kind of a pioneer of television comedy. He worked on the Sergeant Bilko show, Phil Silver show, another show called uh, Car 54, Where Are You? Mm -hmm. And shows of that era. And he got into a kind of a dispute with Nat Hyken. He was Nat Hyken's sort of right-hand guy. He was his, his associate producer. And my father had an idea for a show starring Andy Griffith, who had just become a star. This is before the Andy Griffith show. He was in a movie called A Face in the Crowd, which made him a star. And my father had this idea to put Andy Griffith in a show where he was 
the fire chief of a little southern town. Huh. So he explained this idea to Nat Hiken, and Nat Hiken said, oh, yeah, okay, well, that's a sort of interesting idea, but we're not going to do anything with it. And then a couple of years later, sure enough, the Andy Griffith Show came into existence. And blew up. Yeah, and was a big uh, success. And my father felt that he was denied, you know, authorship of that show. And so there was a big sort of fight between them, and they wound up not working together anymore. I should say to people in... People who are not in show business also often don't understand this principle. Good ideas are very cheap. Uh, if, if you ask me for a good idea for a television show, I, I could reel off probably five or six and a half an hour. Really good ideas. The execution is really the hard part and is really what makes something good or not. Mm. Very often people say to me, you know, I have an idea. I have a great idea for a show. So how do I make it into a show? Are you pitched often? Yes. <laughs> yes. I have, I have the curse of looking like a rabbi or a, or a funeral director or a, an attorney or something. So people mistakenly think that I'm r- rather interested in, in their ideas about what would make a good television show. I shouldn't be so glib about it. I mean, sometimes I am interested. No, it's true. When I walked in here, I thought, hmm, funeral director. <laughs> This is a funeral director's kind of home, I think. (laughs) (laughs) So people do, I I often, you know, people know me from movies and TV shows, but they don't, they really, I look familiar. So they come up to me and they go, you're, you do Billy's orthodontics, right? You do my kid's braces, right? You look so familiar. Mm. And uh, I I don't have the heart to tell them that they know me from movies. So I say, yeah, just, just bring your payment to the next, the last session and everything will be fine. (laughs) yeah, so people do sometimes have good or not good ideas about things and want to, you know, share them. Anyway, so to get back to the story, my father no longer worked with Nat Hyken, and he always wanted to be a novelist. That was his kind of dream, to be a writer. He tried writing television, didn't, you know, writing it himself didn't really work out. Eventually, he wound up in advertising, repping, being a rep in advertising for various directors. And this is sort of the madman age of yes. advertising. This was when all the smart people weren't going into computers, they were all going into advertising. <laughs> I can remember clearly... A different time. A very different time. And advertising was really thought of as the coming thing. It's a big, exciting field to be in. And people who were successful in it made enormous amounts of money, and they lived this kind of enviable life where they got to drink all day long, smoke, and have affairs just like on Mad Men, you know. I think there were, I think there was tonally that show was extremely accurate as I, at least through my child's eyes memory of that mm. that era. But he wasn't he he wasn't doing the Don Draper thing. He was much more kind of, you know, slogging it out trying to make a living. And eventually that didn't work out and for a couple of years he didn't work at all attempting to write, but we didn't know that. He would put his suit and tie on and go off to somewhere and I didn't know that he wasn't working. At what age were you when he was just going off during the day? I was, from the time I was 14 till I was 16, or mm-hmm. 13 till 16, something like that. Is that around the time they tell you, I mean, when did you first know that you were adopted? Was that early on in life? That was much earlier, yeah. They told me that I was adopted as soon as I could uh, talk. Mm-hmm. And there have been various swings of opinion about when the right time to do that is. And I think prevailing thinking at that time was, well, you don't want somebody to find out that he's been misled about that. That would be very, you know, upsetting to, to think that you were biologically somebody's child and then find out that, that it wasn't so, would be so upsetting that it's better to tell them and let them kind of adjust to it. 
And so that's what it was, that was done in my case. And I remember asking my parents certain questions to which they didn't have very satisfactory answers. And I remember asking, how did you guys come to adopt me? And my mother said, well, we went into a room full of babies and everybody was in a crib and you were smiling and we just liked you. So we chose you, which is a charming story, although not true. <laughs> although not true. You were never smiling in childhood. I think I smiled for a while, but I think by the time I was probably four or five, I wasn't smiling so much. I was not smiling so much. My childhood was not easy. What does that mean? Well, I had a difficult time with my mother, particularly. My mother was a very unusual kind of force of nature person, a very strong, very, very narcissistic and very needing of constant reassurance, constant worship might be too strong a word, but not that strong, needed to be reassured that she was a valuable, beautiful, important person all the time. And her, she was very anxious to have children, but I think the desire in her to have children, at least in my case, was largely to shore up this idea of herself as a valuable person. So whenever I suggested as a child that things were not so good with me, when I was not happy about one thing or another, and it could be something minor, that was met with a great deal of displeasure on her part. And the nature of her love was consuming. She, uh, she was like a bulldozer, and uh, you know, if you didn't get out of the way, she was incapable of discriminating between what was good for her and what was good for anybody else. So if something made her happy, she presumed that it was good for all. So at a rather early age, probably long before I was really ready to do so, I had to kind of extricate myself from her grasp, from her embrace, which made her very bitter and angry at me and made me feel uh, rather lonely. My father I had a much better relationship with, but you know, it's funny, my father and mother were kind of so different. And I could never understand. My, my mother was volcanic in her energy. She, just, she never stopped talking. She constantly said things that would... She, <laughs> she, she didn't care about alienating people or saying things that were hurtful to them very much. There was, as people say today, no filter on her. Just, you know, constantly mm. this effluvia would come out of her. And my dad was kind of the opposite. Witty, kind of sweet, good-natured, a little held back but also kind of depressed. There was a quality of depressedness about him. They seemed so opposite. I could never understand why, what the, and they were very loyal to each other, very. I could never get why. And then ultimately I understood my father needed this kind of energy, this kind of volcanic nonstop thing that my mother provided to lift him out of this doldrum state that he was in. He, he really, you know, that she was valuable, I think, especially for that. And the nature of my childhood, as I remember it was, particularly my early childhood, was there was a lot of up and down. I could be praised a great deal, and I was for certain things. When I demonstrated manifestations of being intelligent, they liked that. You went to a school for gifted children. I did. I went to Hunter College Elementary School, which was a kind of a, a model school for gifted children in the city, which still exists. It's interesting because it was supposed to train not trained, but it was supposed to be a sort of an experimental school for kids that were very advanced intellectually. And an enormous number of them wound up 
not being captains of industry or great scientists. An enormous number wound up being in show business, strangely, and disappointingly, I shouldn't say disappointing, but uh, I think surprising some of the people who set it up. Lin-Manuel Miranda, for example, the guy who uh, went there and many other people that, I, that, that might be of note in show business. Anyway, so when I demonstrated that I was smart or that I was clever or that I was particularly filially happy, was happy with the way my parents treated me, I was praised. But it could turn on a dime. And when I was not acting in a way that made my parents, particularly my mother, feel like... Wanted or happy? Well, not making her feel like she was doing a great job and she was, you know, by association, wonderful. Then I was not only dealt with dispassionately, but more like, what do we need you for? Mm. There was a definite quality of, you know, you're expendable. And of course, when you're adopted, no matter how tactfully or thoughtfully you're told you're adopted, when you're a child, you can't really make sense of it. So you always, part of you... I mean, I don't remember thinking this consciously, but I'm certain it was somehow in my mind. Part of you thinks, well, geez, if my first parents gave me away, couldn't that happen again? And is there something about me that makes me innately unlovable? Or why would a mother and father want to get rid of a child? Did you feel defective? I think I did. I think at some level I did. It took on many manifestations. I think I felt... When I had my parents that raised me, they were very oriented towards appearance. They were both very good-looking, both very stylish. They dressed remarkably well for even things that, were, that seemed to me to be you know, not important. But that was a big deal for them, looking up a certain part. And I think, to be frank, I was a little bit disappointing, I felt, in that category, in that realm. Appearances? Yes. I don't think I was good-looking enough. I think I, was, I got fat when I was... In puberty, not alarmingly so, but I was far from the little charming lad that I had been at pre-puberty. And so I think I began to feel like I was not kind of what had been ordered up. Mm -hmm. And that was partly to do with looks, partly to do with other deficiencies that I thought I had. And, I, and to this day, there's a television show that I've been working on. I wrote it as a feature, but I've been working on it, been working on it now as a, as a TV show, which is largely about that. It's about people who innately think that they're lovable. And there are people like that and other people like me who are inclined to think in spite of good evidences that they may be given by others, that they always have to earn it. They have to do something. They have to be extra nice or extra brilliant or extra daring or extra something or other in order to merit mm -hmm. the love of others. And I think to some degree that has followed me around. I will say I do think that that is a common thread among adopted people. This may be a little bit of a bromide, but I do think there's truth in it. If you look around at some of the great achievers of our time, Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos and some other people that are adopted, there's a rather high proportion of people that are super achievers among the adopted. I have many friends who are adopted, some actors I know. I think actors, <laughs> again, I'm making a very broad generalization, but I think there's a kind of a, you know, what kind of person becomes an actor? Well, to have the kind of, you know, you are saying, hey, look at me. I mean, there's something here worth looking at that you won't see everywhere else. Mm -hmm. But by the same token, actors are people that need strangers to approve them, to tell them that they're okay, to break it down to a kind of a simplistic level. So I do think 
there's something in, in those populations that there's an implied feeling that if you just go along, if you just are a person, just a man or a woman, that's not quite enough. You have to achieve something. You have to, I was thinking, I was, I, I, among my other friends who were adopted, uh, Fran McDormand was adopted. Although uh, many people who were adopted, including Fran and Steve Jobs and other people, report their adoptions and their feelings about their adoptions entirely different than mine. You know, Fran, I know from having discussed it with her years and years ago when we were at Yale together, adores her family and I think was made to feel, you know, extremely welcome. And, and you know, and Steve Jobs said publicly many times that his family supported him unbelievably, although he chose to do something that was thought of as very difficult and perhaps, you know, a strain in certain regards. And when he, in fact, met his biological family, he didn't want much of a relationship with them at all because he didn't feel that in any real sense they were his family. Were you destined to be an actor then? Given, given your background and, and part of being adopted, it seems like that was a natural path. Well, to the extent that destiny actually exists in the real world, I think there were strong antecedents to my becoming an actor. For one thing, my biological mother is an actress and a director, filmmaker, and my biological father was related to the Adlers, the Luther Adler and Stella Adler and Jacob Adler. And so they're a very famous family in theater history. So I certainly genetically had it. That fact really struck me when I, when I read that. Yeah. That, that you had related to the Adlers. Yeah, I had it on both sides. And then also my adoptive family were sort of in it too. And growing up as I did, my family, we lived in New York City, but we had a summer house in Fire Island where I spent all my summers and all my weekends, you know, growing up. And that, at the time when I was there, which was the 60s, primarily 60s and early 70s, was very show busy. And my parents were in a set of people, close friends, um, the vast majority of whom were involved in show business in one respect or another. So it was all very familiar to me. <laughs> Although my parents were not particularly thrilled when I announced that I, that I wanted to be an actor. When you went to Yale? Well, it's funny. That didn't please them? Not as, I, not as I would have liked, but that was typical of their reactions to my achievements in general. I kept thinking, you know, I'm going to do something someday and they're going to go, wow, that's great. But it never, there was almost nothing like that my whole life, except in my very early childhood. I remember, you know, specifically getting into Yale, which was a big, big deal, you know, for me and telling them about it. And they were, yeah, yeah, okay, that's, that's great. And then I got my first job on Broadway and, you know, I was not very old. I was like 25 or six, something like that. And they were like, yeah, yeah, great. We'll come. But I expect, and then, and then when I was much older and had children, you know, that's, you know, if you're a grandparent, I was going to say if you're Jewish, but I think you could be Italian or anything else. I don't think it really matters what you are ethnically. If being a grandparent doesn't make your day, you know, hearing that news doesn't sort of brighten the, the horizon for you, I don't think there's much that will. So I think, and this ties in with what we were just talking about before, I think I thought that it was my job to uh, make the prospects of the world seem less daunting, less, less unhappy. And that's part of why I didn't act for so long, because I had it in my head that I chose to be an actor for some not so healthy reasons as probably large proportion of actors do. I think I thought it was my job to make life seem great to people and that an actor must be a kind of a superman to do that. Mm. And 
I pursued acting with that in some part of my consciousness, and that became very burdensome. I can remember specifically thinking and doing a lot of theater and thinking, Jesus, eight shows a week, what a pain in the ass. I have to go out there and those people are going to laugh in all the same places again. And, and, you know, there are some actors for whom the adulation of the audience is such a payoff, you know, being in front of the audience, having the audience dig what they're doing, laugh at it if they're doing comic stuff or feel it if it's not a comedy. That's so, so stimulating to them that whatever they have to suffer to do it, it's not costly to them. It's well worth it. But for me, I began to resent the audience and what I viewed as my obligation towards them. And I think that kind of made it difficult for me to act. And then later, when I got older, I stopped viewing it as an obligation, and that made acting a much more palatable choice. But in this scenario, I mean, the audience, you're describing your parents. Yes. <laughs> yes. You, that, you're quite right. The resentment started there. Well, I don't think I'm alone in that. I mean, you're, you're right that it would be a sad comment if I never superseded that paradigm of viewing uh, the audience as my parents. But I do think that that is psychologically what underlies the relationship for a great many actors and for all actors to a certain degree. Mm, you seem particularly skilled at unpacking the psychological aspects of your upbringing. And I guess I was interested, do you think that comes from your, your biological father, who was a psychoanalyst? Yeah, I think that a kind of thinking, the ability to do a kind of thinking, probably has some genetic basis. But I also think that, in my case, it was born of years of you know, trying to get better and having many years of psychoanalytically-based uh, psychotherapy. And, and also, it's the way that I... You know, if somebody, like, if somebody is the way I am and is inclined to use their intellect to solve problems rather than other things, perhaps more bashed to do other things, you know, it's the way that every problem I encounter is uh, knee-jerk solved or at least attempted to be solved. So even when problems are emotional or they have a, a character that is not intellectual, I still try and solve them intellectually to, you know, to admittedly not always satisfactory results at the fans, you know. <laughs> I was about to say, that may not always work. No, it doesn't. And in fact, the principle of psychoanalysis, the principle of psychoanalytic theory, at least classical psychoanalytic theory, is to reduce it to something very simple, that by fenestrating the subconscious, in other words, by poking a hole in it and allowing some of the stuff that's repressed to come into your consciousness, theoretically, it will not have to be expressed in behaviors that are damaging. In reality, that kind of works, but it kind of doesn't. You can understand things very well and still not be able to change patterns of behavior that are problematic. It takes both an understanding of things and also a willingness to endure a certain kind of discomfort and also a kind of resolve that is not intellectual, I guess. And after all, art, which is the thing, I mean, I am speaking again in such general terms, but Art has an intellectual side to it, but it would be very sorry art if that's all there was. There has to be an element of leaping into something unknown. That's what makes it beautiful. And to do an exegesis, to do a, a you know, an, a, that's kind of like for the critics to do. Mm. You know, I don't think or talk about my own work or even the work of people that I admire in a highly academic way because what's the point? That's kind of like explaining a joke. It's never as good as the joke. You know what I mean? 
Precisely. Although, <laughs> I think it's worth diving into your time doing Amadeus, which yes. seemed to be a rather significant turning point for you as an actor. So that happens after Yale, right? And it is before your film work. Yeah, that was a, that was the the hardest time in my life, at least that I can remember. I got out of Yale in 1981, and I went immediately to the Guthrie, which is a theater out in Minneapolis, to do a season at the Guthrie, which I enjoyed. And then I came back to New York and I got a part in Amadeus, a touring company of Amadeus and then on the Broadway run of Amadeus. And I did that for a long time, about 16 months. And about midway through that, I began to have enormous problems doing the show and in general, you know, enormous I was in a, in, a, in a really bad depression, but a depression that was not merely a low kind of a feeling. It also had extreme elements of anxiety and all kinds of physical problems going along with it. And meanwhile, I had this eight show a week schedule to do. And it took every ounce of every bit of resolve and courage that I had to get myself to do it. And I said, as it was ending, Jesus, I, I'm never going to do that again. You know, I made this horrible mistake. I went to Yale Drama School, and I said, I'm going to be an actor. And people said, oh, it's so hard. You don't want to do that, including my parents. And my father said to me, why don't you be a theatrical attorney? <laughs> Hoping to give me something better, not realizing that theatrical attorneys are often the most scorned and hated people in the world. But anyway. Uh, he still uh, wanted you to do theater. Well, he wanted me to be around it, but to not have to deal with the exigencies of being an actor where you have to worry about making a living and there's a lot of rejection and it's, you know, it's a tough game for a lot of people. Theater adjacent. In every milieu, it's tough in movies, it's tough in television. It's just, you know, you're dealing with a population for the most part that's successful in it, but it's tough. It's very tough. I mean, um, well, I think everybody knows the numbers are staggeringly discouraging for people that aspire to it. Mark Maron told me when somebody says, uh, oh, my daughter's interested in, in, you know, in being an actress, he always says, well, how does she feel about sitting around and doing nothing for weeks? And is she, is she good in small spaces where you can't move and it's hot and, you know, it's tough. It's a tough, and when you're needed, it's great and it's great to do it, but it makes, it can make for a difficult life. In that exchange, you said the wonderful parts of acting are more wonderful than you can imagine. And the shitty parts are really, really awful. Yes, I commend myself for having said it so well. Eloquent, I thought. Well, it's true. It's really true. That's exactly what it is. The great parts are great, and the bad parts are really, really, really bad. That might be said about life in general <laughs> to people who are young, uh, you know, and considering life as a thing before them. But that's the way I found it. But, you know, if somebody said to me, is it worth it? For me, it's definitely been worth it, but I can't, it's so deep in my, I don't know, in my personality, in my DNA now that- uh, Hard to imagine life any other way. Yeah. It really is hard to imagine life any other way. And I hear people say stuff like, oh, I couldn't, I was chose to be an actor because I couldn't do anything else. Well, I could have done other things. You know, I'm sure I could have been a, as you could see, I probably could have been a rather chatty psychotherapist or- something else. But I don't think I would have been nearly as satisfied or as deeply happy as the deeper happiness that I've had from being an actor. And also just being a writer and being around the creation of things, the creation of stories, the creation of, and, and you know, 
It's interesting. I was reading a thing in the Times about people who read all the time. I think, I can't remember who was being interviewed, but somebody said, why don't you go out and, you know, enjoy this beautiful day? And how about really living instead of reading so much? And the, the person who was responding said, well, just a second, reading is actually living. And the inner life that is fed by the stories that we all enjoy is no less real and no less important than what we experience in our day-to-day actual lives. And in fact, if you're involved in a novel or a television show or a movie that's really good, those characters become more real to you and in a sense more important to you than many people from your actual life. You know, I always judge a work of art by a simple test. And the test is, does it run through my mind? Do I still think about parts of it? Mm. When you're walking around in your day. Yeah, or years later or weeks later. Or, you know, I went to see Dunkirk uh, a couple of days ago, about about a week ago. And my own reaction was, you know, it's technically uh, obviously an achievement, but there's hardly anything in it that I remembered even 24 hours later because it's heavy on, to my way of thinking, very heavy on technical achievement and very light on stuff that really insinuates itself into your some level of your consciousness that then becomes important. Now, how to make artworks that do that is a great and difficult question. But what I'm always trying to do as an actor is to haunt the audience, even in something funny. What I want to do is make the character or the situation or something about whatever it is that they're being allowed to participate in haunting so for me it's not enough to be amusing it's not enough to be funny although entertaining them is what i'm trying to do entertainment means different things to different people and i'm aiming at an audience for whom entertainment is a deeper thing and i want to do something write something be involved in something create a performance that actually continues to trudge around in some part of their mind some part of their being that's always what i want it seems fitting you said you could do something else and one of those things is that you could be a chatty psychotherapist (laughs) yes i thought that was a good phrasing well the reason i said that is because really good psychotherapists often don't talk so much right no no i i i know this in fact fittingly your first role in movies is a psychoanalyst in lovesick yes in 1983 which i think really a good omen, in fact. I think that's, it was a good thing to start your career that way. Well, I mean, it seems appropriate. I don't know how much of a good omen it is. I, I, I would have rather maybe started on something that was a little more in the Indiana Jones category. No? Uh, not uh, your bag. <laughs> yeah. I'm talking about what I'd like. Like? Uh, I mean, yeah. well, we can talk about what we like all day. That's not, <laughs> that doesn't mean anything. I mean, that, no. that's, not, that's not what happened. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. Uh, there no, was you a, could have been an Indiana Jones, whatever. You can you can be in that. We should, they should have put you in Star Wars. Yeah, well, you know, you always kind of want what you what you don't have. What you know, the the I think there's a I think there's some truth. I whenever I go in the makeup chair, and they're designing a makeup for whatever the uh, role is, I always say when they're done, uh, I had you know something like a different kind of look for this character in mind, like maybe more of a Channing Tatum look, but I'll go with the old Jew thing that you've created if that's mm-hmm. the way you see the character. If that's what you want, I'll be happy to do it. Are you and Channing Tatum often up for the same role? 
uh, well, I, I think the world hasn't seen my dance moves yet. Mm. Though we were both in the Coen Brothers movie together, I didn't get into the dance scene that he did. Had I been given that, uh, it's possible that we might have been, you know, at least in, you know, Channing Tatum, by the way, is who I'd never met before doing that movie, is an extremely kind and funny guy and very talented and was very, was so respectful to me that it's, it, Job, it, my, my jaw dropped. He talked to me in the most hushed and sort of worshipful almost tones, which shocked the shit out of me. But I was, I was thrilled that he knew who I was. It was very nice. Well, it's very nice. I mean, your career, we started with Lovesick here, but throughout the 80s, you start getting more work. But even your second role is Dr. Gray and Hannah and her sisters. You're playing doctors fairly often here. Yes, horrible authority figures, authority figures that <laughs> deliver bad news yes bad news or or yeah. well, i guess so when people see you they think well funeral director yeah i i think um if you look a certain way as i do if you look you know like you sort of represent the evil empire if you <laughs> you, you know you, you represent the frowning status quo you you kind of fit well into the comedy bag as i do especially if you have this slightly pompous way of talking and everything I think that makes you useful to people that make movies because they always need blowhards, you know, like me that they can, you know, send up. You think you naturally fit that role? Yeah, I think I have a kind of authority that everybody, including me, enjoys seeing deflated. And I went through a period, I think I'm still in it actually, where I, I'm about the right age to be cast as a lot of leading men's parents. You know, often people are in their 30s when they're playing these leads so i'm the right age i'm 61 and i'm particularly called upon to be bad fathers or friends of fathers that are you know looking lustfully at their daughters that are you know 40 years or 30 years younger than me or something like that mm-hmm. um, i think if you have the sort of eminence front uh you know that that comically that that kind of works well and i'm not decrying that because i have my own sort of fish to fry with the powers of the establishment. So I'm happy to to make fun of those people too. Can you give me the entry point into being in a Woody Allen movie? Because over the years you've been in, I believe, seven now. Yeah, it was just good fortune for me. You were in New York. What happened was when you go to Yale or any of the big professional programs, I think this is still true. It was true when I graduated from Yale, which is now... 81 so that's a good 36 years ago it's a long time ago but they have these auditions when you graduate from Yale where everybody from Juilliard and Yale and Carnegie Mellon and all the sort of professional training schools gets together in New York it was in New York and a lot of people come to see you many casting directors and the people from Saturday Night Live came to see us and I remember and so at these particular auditions they see many 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 kids auditioning so you know, typically, in, like at Yale, there was 12 kids in my class in my year. So there was probably 10 drama schools. So they have to sit through 150 auditions of different people. So I took a sort of educated guess that they would enjoy seeing something funny and like kind of like really crazily funny. So I chose to do this scene that a friend of mine named Keith Redeen, who I went to drama school, wrote, which was absurdly funny, kind of in the Monty Python bag. And some people said to me, oh, you're going to do that? I mean, you know, it's, this is serious. You know, you're going to like, but. I Would thought, you like to perform it now? <laughs> well, it involves many other people. It wasn't just me. And I also don't remember the lines from it. But I was 
lucky to choose it because it was a huge hit. It got enormous, you know, applause and people loved it and remember it. And the next day they post everybody, all the different people that want to see you. And I was, I mean, I was unbelievably successful and lucky at that where every big casting director and, you know, all wanted to meet me. So one of them was Juliette Taylor, who casts all Woody's films. Still does. Yeah, she still does. So I don't know how it uh, happened, but she just said to me, uh, so uh, Woody has this uh, thing. And I remember going in to meet him initially. He used to have a, an office on Park Avenue where he'd cut all his films. And it was in a hotel there on Park Avenue. He had kind of an editing suite. So I went in and just said hi to him. That was it. Just, you know, hello, how are you? No, no audition. Just nice to meet you. That was it. And then I Any small talk? Very, very small, like two words, two or three words. And then uh, he knew me, and then he would just cast me in things. He did once have me in to talk again, because in radio days, he was thinking of editing in a certain way, which would have a long narrative sections of a narrator. And he was thinking, he was wondering if he wanted to have me do the narration. He wound up doing it himself, ultimately. Mm-hmm. He was thinking of having me do it rather than him. So he talked to me for you know a long time about that. Then later, I remember helping him do some auditions. There was a play on Broadway that I was in, another play years later, where he wrote one of these three one acts. So I was helping them with auditions for these, for these one acts and reading with other people that would come in an audition. So I was sitting there for all these different auditions. And I wasn't really supposed to say anything and comment about anybody else's audition, but somebody came in to read and inadvertently when the guy was done reading the scene with me, I said something like, oh, that was good. I didn't, I shouldn't have said that. It wasn't my place to say that, but I just, it just kind of slipped out of my mouth. And when he came, when he, when the guy left the room, Woody came over to me and he said, don't encourage them. (laughs) Those were his words of advice. Don't encourage them. He's a very unusual character, very unlike anybody else I've ever met, certainly in show business, but probably anybody else I've ever met in the world. He said to me, quite in earnest, if I could just spend all day writing, writing movies, mm. and then go out and have a nice dinner and watch a basketball game, I wouldn't need to make all these movies. I don't have to spend my entire, you know, he doesn't like to be around people. He likes to be alone. I noticed this. I, I interviewed him once for an hour in person, and it was an extended enough talk to where I got a feeling of who he was. And the sentiment that I got is that he really would prefer to not have pretty much anyone in his life if he could have it that way. Yeah. I think Sun Yi might be an exception to that. He likes having a relationship with one woman. Yeah. And he seems to like the kids. And and I think he likes his bandmates where he plays at the Carlisle on Monday. But all that's very limited. You know, they're friends. And I think they're real friends. He's He's good friends with Mel Brooks and some other people that I know. But I think that's for, you know, it's for a couple of hours and then you go home. You know, which uh, I can... I assume he doesn't have friends, really. I think he has friends, but they're not... They're friends that suit a certain station in life. And, you know, I think he has friends, but they're not... He's a solitary kind of person. Mm -hmm. And I think he likes it that way. I think he wants to see friends kind of when he wants to, and, and he enjoys that. But then, you know, he's... I think, really, he would like to be left alone most of the time. And the fact of the matter is, when you make movies, you're never alone especially if you're directing movies as right. he is, you know, all day long, it's a, it's a serious movie. When you direct movies, it's one problem after another that is to be solved. It's funny. The, a lot of the great artistic decisions are already made 
by the time you're on the set and on the set and by those times it's just well you know this is not working out what are we going to do we have to do something else we have to, it's all kind of on your feet the very best story about movie making that i know is my favorite anyway is james gray's story i saw i saw you did a you did a, a, a interview with james gray i don't think he told this story but it's I, it's a story i know from him they were making godfather and francis had cast the role of luca brazzi he had cast a guy who was not an actor. He was a professional wrestler, Lenny Montana. And he particularly wanted Lenny Montana because there's a scene you might remember in the movie where he is garroted. They put a thing around his neck and choke him. And Lenny Montana had this trick where he could make his eyes bulge out right. very convincingly. Which he, he was does. that guy. He was that guy. So he really wanted Lenny Montana. But Lenny Montana was nervous acting. He was not used to it. So the very first day of shooting was that enormous wedding scene that opens The Godfather with, you know, hundreds of extras, very expensive, complicated technically. So there was shooting among the scenes that shooting that day was the scene where Lenny Montana is supposed to come in and thank Marlon Brando for inviting him to his daughter's wedding. So he had this speech, this brief speech where he's supposed to say, I want to thank you, Godfather, for the honor of including me at your daughter's wedding. It wasn't much. It was just like a sentence, but he could not get it right. He was so nervous. He was so absolutely nervous. And Marlon Brando, being the way that Marlon Brando was, was not helping him at all. He was like making fun of him and putting things that said fuck you on his forehead and, you know, just doing all these kind of Marlon Brando things. So Lenny Montana kept getting it wrong. He would say, I want to thank you, Godfather, for the honor of inviting me to your daughter's wedding on the day of your daughter's wedding. <laughs> kept doing this. He couldn't get it right. So they tried like 10 times and he couldn't get it right. So Francis said, okay, that's good. We got it. We got it. And Robert Evans said, what do you mean? We don't, he never said it right. You can't use it like that. And Francis said, no, no, I got it. I got it. I got it. But in the next setup, between the next big thing that they were shooting, and these were big setups because it was crowds and stuff, he had Lenny Montana sit outside on a bench practicing the speech as if he were nervous. And he goes, I want to thank you, Godfather, for, for the honor of inviting me. So you see him nervous about speaking to Marlon Brando as the God, you know, speaking to the Godfather. So he edited it in such a way that when you see it, it makes perfect sense mm. that he can't get the speech right. That's a great lesson about filmmaking. Films are like wild horses. They try and get away from you. That's the nature of filmmaking. You have to not only cope with that, but you have to do your best to make creative use of those things because they happen all the time. Anyway. I love that story. Yeah, me too. And it's really a good example of what happens, you know, and how you have to sort of respond to things. Is there a project you remember that, to use your phrasing, a wild horse got away? It couldn't be wrangled. Well, do you mean from me personally or from the film itself? Perhaps both. Well, let's see. I do remember, this is, this, <laughs> this, is not, this is where the horse not only got away, but kind of broke down. I do remember being shocked to be on the set of Ishtar. I was in the movie Ishtar. This was early on in my career. It was about 1986 or 7. I don't remember exactly. but 87. 87. But I had a role in that, uh, not, not a smallish role. It was, I had like three scenes in it. But it was a big movie, very expensive, with a lot of expectations. I think most people know, you know, Ishtar is probably up there with Heaven's Gate as one of the uh, 
renowned uh, disasters. disasters of movie making. And it's a real shame because I say that not because of the movie, there are, although there are some people today who, you know. It has a following. Yeah, it definitely has a following. But I say that primarily because it kind of ended, well, maybe ended is too harsh a word, but it, it curtailed very much the career of Elaine May. Elaine May wrote and directed Ishtar. Mm-hmm. And it was so odd to see that collapse as we were making it. You know, usually after a film is being done shot, the studio may decide that it's not salvageable, it's not worth it. They spend, they spend a, an amount of money often equal to the amount of money making it, promoting it. So sometimes studios will shelve a movie because it's not worth it to promote it. They don't think it's going to recoup the costs. But this movie came apart while they were making it. And I remember being in, we were shooting it at Kaufman Astoria in New York. And there was a scene, it took place in this big restaurant. It was supposed to be like Rick's Cafe American in in Casablanca. And there was like a hundred extras. It was tables and a big band and all that, just like in, in Casablanca. And Monday, there was literally 120 extras. And by Wednesday, there was about 50 extras. And by Friday, it was like 11 extras. They, just, they just pulled the plug on it. You know, it was, everything that was costing them money, they were taking apart. And I was very shocked to see the way that Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty were kind of treating Elaine May. They seemed to have lost faith in her and were showing it, which I thought was odd. Why do you think that was? Well, I don't know why they had lost faith in her. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I wasn't on it long enough to know the answer to that. That seemed to really affect her career in a way that a lot of people still have so much reverence and then love for the work Elaine May. Yeah, she's an extraordinary, extraordinarily good writer. And some of the films that she directed are, you know, very good. And I, I think it's a real shame. Also, it was 30 years ago. And the implicit, uh, not, not that I'm, you know, have to beat the drum, but the implicit sexism was uh, there. No question about it. Mm. Uh, there weren't too many women directors, especially in those days, women directors being given big budget movies with big male stars like Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman, who were pretty much used to maybe throwing their weight around is too strong a term, but, you know, being able to augur for things that they wanted themselves. They were, you know, big, important stars. Mm. Is there a role that you think you didn't quite figure out? I frequently see things where I wish I would have done something better. I can't really say there's one that comes to mind that I, that I didn't figure out, but I've had situations where Things have been said to me that suddenly opened a door. That's a big deal. Really good directors have this gift where they don't talk too much, but they can say one or two things, and somehow the one or two things are very useful. I remember I was doing a movie with Cher called Suspect, and I had to play... In Suspect, Cher is a legal aid lawyer who's kind of burnt out. She's sick of it. She's tired. She doesn't want to do it anymore. And I was her boss, at the head of the Legal Aid Society in Washington, Washington D.C. And she turns to me at one point and says, you know, like, why do you do it? Why do you, what's the point? You know, these are, most of these people are guilty that we're representing. They don't appreciate us. We don't make any money. I'm going to be a lawyer. You know, at least I should make some decent money. I'm not making anything. Mm-hmm. I don't have any time. And it becomes clear, I deliver her a speech where I sort of reveal the fact that I'm a sort of a true believer in the cause, you know. So I wasn't quite, 
I didn't quite understand what makes somebody like that. What makes somebody believe, in spite of all evidence to the contrary, that it's worth it to try to do something to change society in a real way when every day his work is telling him that society is not going to change and it's the same criminal element. He's, you know, all that stuff. And (laughs) I asked the director, Peter Yates, uh, you know, I said, I don't think I quite have a handle on this character. I don't, I don't think I quite understand him. And he said to me, well, at home, your character, Morty, I see him as having a lot of children at home, which had nothing to do, nothing to do with the story at all. But somehow I thought, yeah, right. So to me, that meant A, that he's patient, that he's used to dealing with things that don't happen quickly. And B, maybe he doesn't want to be at home. You know, it's a madhouse at home and he has to, he has to, you know, be out, he has to fight something outside. And somehow in my, that just opened a door where I thought, yeah, that that's good. And that it helped me quite markedly with that character. You're working pretty consistently till about 2002 seems to be the year. And just going through, you know, an IMDb cursory search there's a gap between 2002 and 2009 mm-hmm. that feels uh, like an anomaly in, in your trajectory. And I was wondering what, what was happening in those seven years. Well, two things. One thing that was happening was I had children. My wife and I had children. And our children had very serious problems. One child in particular. We were living out in Montauk, and I had been successful in the voiceover part of my career, quite successful up until that point, and was doing an occasional movie. And then all of a sudden, they changed sort of direction, CBS changed direction. I was the voice of CBS Sports for about seven years, which was a great job, although artistically was not, not deeply satisfying. It was certainly deeply satisfying where making money was concerned. And I was getting my artistic needs met by writing and doing other things. But that was a really, really good job. And all of a sudden, that stopped. And I was all of a sudden kind of non grata. You know, it was funny. I had been in that. I had been a visible enough player in that world for long enough that I was thought of as being part of the old guard and that there was a definite sort of sea change in the voiceover world. And all of a sudden, I wasn't making money. And people said, oh, yeah, that's part of what was. And then I was kind of just struggling to keep my head above water. And that went on for a long time, a long, long time. I was working, but very, very, you know, minor, very minor ways. Did you feel, um, I mean, frustrated, I imagine? Well, it got beyond frustration. It got down to abject terror. You know, at that point, I had responsibilities. I had two kids. I was married. I had a house. And I had some savings. But after a few years, they were pretty much, had been pretty much eaten through. Pleated. Yeah. And I remember a friend of mine, I had like a year's worth of money left before I'd have to do something really dramatic like sell our house or something. And I remember this friend of mine saying to me, listen, if you didn't have to worry about money, what would you like to do? And I said, well, if I didn't have to worry about it. I'd like to go back to acting, you know, more seriously and writing like I did years ago. But he said, but it's such a, it's such a crapshoot. It's so uncertain. He said, so why don't you try? You know, you've got nothing to lose. You're going to have to do something anyway. So I did. I did. I, I decided to try, you know, in earnest, 
to no great success initially. You know, I was like on Law and Order and, you know, the typical things, if you're a New York guy. And then one day I was sitting at home with my wife, and as, as I think you know, I got a, we got a call, and it was Joel Cohen of the Cohen Brothers offering me this part in their film, A Serious Man. And it was uh, out of nowhere, as far as I was concerned. They knew me a little bit because I had auditioned for Barton Fink probably 15 years before that for the great role in Barton Fink of Jack Lipnick. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get it. I placed, according to Ethan Cohen, I came in second, but the guy who did it was wonderful in it and was nominated for an Oscar. But anyway, they knew me from that. And also I knew a lot of people from their retinue because I had gone to school with, with Fran McDormand and John Turturro and I knew John Goodman and a lot of people that were kind of in their you know stock company. So they knew me a little bit. So Joel Cohn said to me, are, are you interested in, you know, this, this movie? And I said, yeah, 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 yeah. So they said, well, come into New York. We want to talk to you about it. So I read it. I thought it was great. And I went into New York and they, and I read for them and they said, yeah, well, we definitely want you to do it. We're not going to audition anybody else. But the problem is we're doing this with two other movies kind of simultaneously. And we don't know which is going to come first. And one of the movies was Burn After Reading, which had like, stars in it and Brad Pitt and, and George Clooney. And so they had to do it based on the availability of those stars. So Burn After Reading was done before our movie. So I had to wait another year. And by the end of that year, I was really broke, mm-hmm. really, really, really broke. But then we made A Serious Man, which I had a total blast making. I really enjoyed making it so wonderfully. And it kind of changed the whole trajectory of my, of my life and my career. Uh, you know, that was nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. I won an Independent Spirit Award for it. And it was a big sort of reintroduction of me. When you get that phone call and you're talking to, to Joel... And you hear this good news, you put the phone down, you end the call. You're probably at home and you got it. Your wife is probably there. Yes. What is that conversation? With her? What is that feeling? I mean, it had, it had been seven years since. Yeah. Well, the first thing I thought was, oh, don't fuck this up. <laughs> don't fuck this up. This is such a, and, and you know, I read it and I was so impressed with it as a piece of writing. And I wasn't sure about how to play it. And then I thought about it and I thought about it. And then it sort of came to me how to play it. I just kind of knew how I wanted to play it. And I'm a big believer in that you make a choice and you're, you inhabit it fully. And if it's wrong, it's wrong. But it's much better to go, it's much easier to go from one to two than from zero to one, so to speak. In other words, if you make a choice that's a strong choice and a director sees it, they can direct you into something else. Mm. Whereas if you're, you don't want to be reticent about what you choose. So I made this, this, I decided to play him a certain way. And what I thought was, I was very influenced by this guy, Michael Chekhov, as a theorist of acting. And Michael Chekhov has a concept which he calls essential gesture. What that means is it's kind of a metaphoric way of looking at a, at a character. So what does this character do, Cy Abelman? He massages people. That's what he does. His whole way of being, the way he talks, the way he moves, the way he approaches people is, he massages them to get them to relax. And in getting them to relax, he gets to achieve his Machiavellian ends. He gets to get what he wants. But his whole style of doing it is this sort of strangely gentle, creepy 
style, but he feels he's handling people in a way that they won't be alarmed by. So that's the way I did that. And they were appreciative. They liked it right away. It was good. And it reinvented your career. I mean, it completely reinvigorated. Exactly. Much to my delight. Yeah, it's great. What's, what's fascinating to me is that you were on a path where you were going to have to do something else. Financially, it was no longer feasible to not work or to do what you were doing. And I know you said earlier that you don't, you know, you seem questionable or skeptical of the idea of destiny. But what is that? If not something premeditated, something, I mean, that is so... Well, I don't know. I mean, that's a good question and a question I don't have a, a ready answer for, except to say that in my life, there have been several situations where I thought, oh shit, this is the end of the world. This is really bad. You know, things have happened. I can think of several, you know, where I found out that both of our children had autism. You know, I lost the job at CBS, various medical challenges, other things, problems in relationships. I thought, this is horrible. I'm never going to get over this. I'm never, this is going to be it for me. And in fact, some of those situations wound up being the springboards to which the greatest joys of my life evolved. But at the time, I had no idea. By the way, I think honestly, had I continued as a voiceover artist making, you know, between say three and $500,000 a year doing voiceovers, I don't think I ever would have gone back to being an actor. And I'm so grateful, not just, I mean, I'm so grateful that I went back to acting and writing. It's so much more profoundly satisfying and interesting to me. But I think honestly that I was deeply enough entrenched in that stuff and making money and all that, that I don't think I would have been inclined to really open up to, uh, you know, this whole other world that I had sort of written off. Have the other issues that stem from childhood and feeling not wanted or valued, has that gotten easier or better the more work you've had in, in recent years, or is that completely separate? No, I think there's a whole bunch of things. You know, there's that sort of suspicion that you have. There's also physical things that happen. I mean, I think certain people are inclined physiologically towards... <laughs> depressed points of view or anxiety and other things like that. But I, I think being roundly appreciated, it doesn't have a completely, you know, solving effect for all life's troubles. It doesn't, but it certainly has a mitigating effect. It's certainly very nice. Yeah. Without a doubt. And it gives you, it gives you freedom. You know, it gives you, you, I can choose the projects that I want to be involved in, which is a great luxury to have. And yeah, I think the truth of the matter is you don't actually, whatever neurotic conflicts and problems you have, we never actually defeat them. You sort of cope with them. You know, you sort of find ways of, of, uh, of dancing with them and hopefully not having them mess your life up or the lives of people that you care about so much, but they're always in there. They're always in there. Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, you, you, we're talking about degrees. But I think the things that make up a personality are so deeply established by the time you're three or four that to disabuse yourself of them is nearly impossible. But that's, that's also to the good. I mean, I also think in my case that if I didn't have something to prove, to put it in an oversimplified way, 
I don't think I would have done a lot of the things that I'd done in my life that I've gotten, for which I've gotten a great deal of satisfaction. You know, if I didn't even have this need to do something. You said you needed to create a life for your parents that looked like a winnable proposition is a phrase you've used in the past. Mm -hmm. This is fairly directed to what we've been talking about. Do you think you've done that? Well, I think the wiser appreciation of life suggests that you don't really win or lose ultimately. Well, there are, there are people who lose, but they lose because they're given no chance. You know, there are people who are cut off for one reason or another. So I think I have an appreciation for the whole thing where, I mean, the corniest observation in the world is that it's the journey, but it's also, there's some, some significant truth to it. Yes, I won and I'm winning in the sense that I've gotten, to, I have the incredible luxury and the incredible good fortune of being able to do something that I really dig. You know, 98% of the world gets up and has to go sit, do something that's an enormous pain in the ass just to make a living. You know, they really don't like it. So to have something that I get up and actually am pleased and happy and excited to do is a great blessing. And on top of that, to have this sense of agreement from other people about my worth in it is hugely satisfying. And to be a multimillionaire because of it, well, that's, you know, those are certainly outward signs of having won if such a thing is possible. Do I feel like I won all the time? Mm, no. <laughs> no. But I, I certainly... Because those are all external things you're describing. Yes. Internally, I think I'm a lot better. <laughs> I think I'm a lot better. And I realize also that everybody has stuff they have to deal with that's hard. It's the way life is. It's a question of whether or not the things that are hard limit you from being able to enjoy the stuff that's good, and they limit you behaviorally so that you're not able to function where you use the potential, much of the potential that you have as a human being. I mean, I think when I pray in the, in the way that I do pray, I pray to be a more fully manifested, positively directed human being, as goofy as that sounds. That's what it's about. You know, I like the more of myself that I use in my life, kind of the better, the better it is, the more, more satisfying it is. And that's one of the great things about acting for me. Acting, acting is like, it's like, I feel the same way about acting that I do about gambling is I can't think about anything else when I'm doing it. Completely absorbing to me, which is why I like it. Only the nice thing about acting is most of the time, you don't have something where you make a big bet and then you regret it. It can happen, but it usually doesn't happen that way. Yeah, maybe Ishtar. I don't regret that. I feel bad for that. I mean, I didn't lose much in Ishtar, but certain people certainly did. Well, I'm glad you haven't lost that much, and I'm glad it's worked out in the way it has for you. Me too. Me too. I'm, I'm deeply appreciative of it. You know, you never, well... I always, you know, when people say to me, uh, you know, gee, uh, I see you everywhere and, you know, it's great. And I always say, well, you know, it proves conclusively there's no accounting for taste. 
but I, I'm thrilled that, uh, that, I'm, that I've been able to do this thing that I really enjoy and that there's opportunities for me to do it. I also think that once you get used to doing it and you like doing it and you're, and you're accustomed to the conventions of doing it, you take it for granted. You know, but I try not to do that because it, it, is a great, it is a great luxury to have a life of doing something that you really, really, really enjoy, you know, really thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy. And also that it's not just limited to me. I mean, I get to hopefully make something that affects other people, you know, that I get to have the possibility of stirring them at some deep level. And that's, you know, I think if there is anything that we are born to do, if there is, to, to bring it back around to your original question, if there is any such thing as being born to do something, I think maybe I was born to affect people in some way, born to affect people's enjoyment, appreciation of life. You know, even if I'm just making them see how silly something is, how funny something is, or maybe something else, you know, stories and movies in particular and television shows are a huge part of what's good in life for me anyway. So I'm happy to be able to be active in that, in that realm where I, you know, where my talents, my abilities mean something. Well, thank you for affecting people. It's my great pleasure, truly. And, uh, thank you for coming on, Fred. I enjoyed it very much. Great talking to you, Sam. Special thanks this week to friends of the show, Ariane Rocky at Magnolia and Lemon director Janik Bravo. Speaking of, you can see Fred and Bravo's directorial debut, Lemon, out in theaters and on demand now. It's truly one of those special movies worthy of your time. As for Fred, he returns in season two of Lady Dynamite, which will come out later this fall. Or you could rewatch A Serious Man again and again. Should you want to learn more about Fred and the podcast, be sure to visit our website at www.talkeasypod.com. We're also on Twitter and Facebook at TalkEasyPod. As always, our executive producer is David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, music and sound by Dylan Peck, associate producer is Valerie Attenhofer, and the show is produced by Nora Knight. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. Next week is Norman Lear. I'll see you then. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators 
whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you, and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry, and me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.